And the scripture reading for this evening is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. <coughs> so he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had, had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was getting into the boat. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Now he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Wade. Let's uh, take a second and pray and uh, ask God to help us understand this part of his word. Please join me in prayer. Our Father, we come to you again and um, ask tonight that you would be with us here and that you would be at work among us. Lord, tonight many of us perhaps are coming from uh, a weekend or a week or a month or who knows how long where things have not been going well for us, where we faced difficulty, where we faced frustration, where we faced heartache or loss, where we faced confusion and uncertainty. God, we are in our humanity and in our brokenness so desperately needy for you to guide us, for you to lead us, for you to offer us forgiveness and continue to lead us into your mercy. And tonight we pray that as we continue on life's journey, you would be at work helping us in just those ways, Lord. We pray tonight that Jesus of Nazareth would be seen and understood clearly, that he would be seen and understood to be the son of the most high God, one who has supreme authority and supreme compassion for those whom he came to save, one who indeed is changing everything about this universe through his life and death and resurrection. Help us tonight to see him not just with natural eyes, but with the supernatural spirit-filled eyes of faith that only you give. So give those to us tonight, we ask. 
that each person in this room might see and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he loves us and is for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever heard the phrase, you and whose army? When I was in uh, college and seminary, I was a uh, regular playing board games and card games, and uh, I had a, one particular friend that every time we would play a particular board game together and he was not doing well, my other friends would begin to talk trash. And as that's coming out of my mouth, I realize how pathetic it sounds that we talk trash about board games, but that's the facts. I'm sorry. That's who I am, or thankful, hopefully who I was. And uh, when people would begin to kind of pester him, he would always say, bring it on. Who's going to beat me? You and whose army? Or something like that. And uh, it's also a Radiohead song, which is another reason to love it if you're a fan of the band Radiohead, which you should be, from the Amnesiac album, 2002. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, You and whose army is a a very, you know, fairly well-known phrase that people from time to time have used. And uh, tonight, Jesus faces a literal army, an army of darkness in this one man who was possessed by a demon called Legion. And it's as if Jesus is calling the demon and really all of the forces of the evil one onto the carpet and saying, you and whose army is going to stop me from bringing my kingdom, from doing the will of my father. As we've been making our way through Mark, there's a couple of things that we see almost every week. And in particular, in these chapters and in this section we're in called, that we're calling the ministry of the king, we have seen the supreme authority of this man, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. And on top of that, we've seen that he's not just an autocrat that has supreme authority, but he also possesses supreme compassion, supreme grace, supreme mercy. Last week, Tim preached for us. Thank you, Tim, by the way, for that word. Uh, While I was out, he preached for us on Jesus um, silencing the wind and the water, calming the storm at the end of Mark chapter 4 with just a word of his mouth. And as many other times there, his disciples are wondering, who then is this man? Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And that's really the question that Mark wants you to ask tonight as you sit under God's word and listen to it and see Jesus through these stories. Who is this man, Jesus? We see again tonight that Jesus is demonstrating his supreme authority and his supreme compassion in casting out this demon, this demon which has possessed this man on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. One commentator says that, From a wild sea, Mark moves on to that of a wild man. Humanly speaking, both were untamable, but Jesus subdued both. Last time Jesus subdued a wild sea, tonight Jesus subdues by his grace and power a wild man. And so I want to look just for a couple of minutes with you tonight at this amazing story, this awe-inspiring story really, of this wild man possessed by an army of demons and how Jesus again shows us who he is and what he intends to do in this world. Here's the main idea, okay? Jesus overwhelms the armies of darkness in our lives. Jesus overwhelms the armies of darkness in our lives. Three things I want to show you. First, the reality of the darkness. Second, the retreat of the darkness. And then third, the response to the darkness. The reality of it, the retreat of it, and the response to it. Okay, so first, let's look at the reality of the darkness. Chapter five, verse one. 
presumably right after Jesus has calmed this storm. Mark continues, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, that seemingly incidental geographical bit of information is actually really important. And it's really important because what we see here is Jesus, for the first time in his public ministry, leaving Jewish-dominated territory and entering into the realm of the Gentiles. You know, for an ancient Jewish person, that would have been like going into Mordor, you know, as Tolkien says, where the shadows lie. I mean, this is a place where God proverbially is not present. It's a place of idolatry. It's a place of evil. It's a place of darkness. And Jesus is very intentionally expanding his kingdom and expanding his ministry into Mordor, so to speak, the place where the shadows lie. And what we find in the following verses is the longest story in the entire Bible of an exorcism. The most expansive story in all of scripture about a demon being cast out is found here. And one of the things that is very, very evident is the reality of the darkness that seems to sometimes overwhelm this world. As Jesus enters into the country of the Gerasenes, the land of the Gentiles, we see that Mark is first pointing out for us that evil is very, very real and very, very persistent. I mean, just look at what he says about this man who has been possessed in his experience. As soon as Jesus steps out of the boat, verse 2, immediately there came out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, which means he's possessed by a demon. So first of all, this guy's living in a graveyard. Not a helpful thing symbolically, right? He comes out from among the tombs. I mean, the obvious thing that that intends to connote, to symbolize for us is the idea of death. The idea of darkness, the idea of of a bone-dry place where there is no life, where there is no hope, where there is no reason for anybody who wants to save their skin to be. That's where this guy lives. He lives among the tombs. And Mark goes on to tell us that no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. And ironically, I think what Mark is actually saying here is that this man is enslaved. He's so enslaved by this demon that has possessed him that no one else can free him. In fact, he's so bound, you might put it like that, he's so bound by legion that no one else could bind him. And his life is, uh, is miserable. He's enslaved to the possession of this evil spirit. This guy, you know, this guy's like a walking penitentiary. He's a real mess. He lives among the tombs. He is in bondage to this unclean spirit. And then we find in verses 4 and 5 that he's all by himself. No one had the strength to subdue him at the end of the verse 4. And then verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself and cutting himself with stones. He has been abandoned by human society. In Luke's account of this story, he tells us that the road that passed by this graveyard was one that was very seldom traveled at this point because people were either afraid of this man who was possessed by legion or they just, they just didn't want any part of that experience. So this man is enslaved. This man is alone. This man is among the tombs. If this story immediately thrusts anything at you, it is this. Evil is a very real thing in this world. Now, Mark has spoken earlier in the gospel about demon possession. 
and about exorcism. And I just, I talked about it, but we kind of passed over it at, at that point. Uh, but I think because this is the longest section in the Bible about demon possession, I just, I just wanted to pause for a second here and help us to understand and just put it out there for you that, that demons are real. There is such a thing as an unseen spiritual world. We live in 21st century Western culture that has been drastically impacted by the enlightenment, by rationalistic ways of thinking, by the idea that the only things that are real are things that can be verified and demonstrated through scientific method or some other inductive means. And so materialism as a philosophical system is a very, very prevalent notion in our society, which means that oftentimes when Christians read or hear or when non-Christians read or hear about something like this in scripture, they'll think this is just mumbo jumbo. People in the ancient world believed in spirits. They believed in demons and angels, and they probably believed in fairies and trolls and dwarfs too, but no educated modern person believes in such things. Well, there's a number of things I would love to say to you if that's where you find yourself tonight. We can talk more about it after the service if you wish. But one thing I would put forward to you without being able to argue for it at this point is simply this. More exists in this world than merely the things we can see, smell, taste, or touch. And virtually every culture in the history of humanity, save modern and postmodern Western culture, has believed just that. The scripture undoubtedly teaches the reality not just of visible physical evil, but of invisible spiritual evil. Demons exist. Demons very infrequently, at least in our part of the world, possess actual people. But I think the scriptures tell us just on a macro level, and history also helps us understand that demon possession still takes place mainly in social systems mainly through um, governmental bodies or huge institutions or organizations. Those things are often under the captivity of the evil one. The point I want to make is that the reality of darkness is something that is accounted for in the Christian story. W.H. Auden was a British poet who lived in the 20th century. And during World War II, he left Britain. He got out before the Nazis started bombing London and moved to New York City for some time. And while he was in New York, he lived in what then was a small little immigrant neighborhood that was mainly made up, made up of Germans. And Auden, at this point in his life, was a committed atheist. And one day he went to a, a film in his neighborhood and he saw many people that he knew there, neighbors and friends and co-workers. And this movie basically was just a piece of Nazi propaganda, uh, particularly in its anti-Semitic tones. It was very hard on the Jews, obviously. And Auden recounts that after the movie was over, he was just stunned when German and Polish people that he knew and that he was neighbors with stood up and began screaming, kill them, kill them. And he says that at that point, he lost his faith in atheism. And here's why. Atheism could not account for the reality of an evil like that. Atheism has no room for the depths of human pain and problems that Auden, in that moment in his life, visibly witnessed. He never became a Christian as far as I know, but I think that that point is an important one. The scriptures tell us again and again not to be naive about the reality of darkness as many modern people are. 
But I think secondly, this demon-possessed man is representative not just of the fact that demons are real, that there's a real spiritual force of evil in the world, but he's also representative of the depth of the problem of sin and evil in our own hearts. Now, none of you are possessed by 2,000 demons or 6,000 demons that I know of, Um, but the difference is not qualitative. It is quantitative, I would say, for those who have not yet believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think actually the experience of this demoniac, this demon-possessed man before Jesus met him, shows exactly what our experience maybe to a lesser degree is like before we meet Jesus. This demoniac walks among the tombs. The scriptures tell us again and again that apart from Christ, we are dead. We are spiritually dead on the inside, as Paul tells us, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2, dead in our trespasses. This demoniac is uh, enslaved. Sin enslaves us as well. We are in bondage to it. We try to worship and follow false gods, idols, that are never going to give us what they promise. This demon-possessed man is alone and isolated. The scriptures tell us all the time that sin also isolates you and me. It isolates us from real and meaningful relationships. That's exactly what happens after the initial fall into sin from our first parents, Adam and Eve in the garden. They are cast out of fellowship, of relationship with God. And there is enmity now between the husband and the wife. All of the experiences that this man had typify or represent the experiences that each of us had, either before we were following Jesus or the experiences that we continue to have if we're not following Jesus by faith now. The first and maybe one of the most important things we can take from this passage is that The Bible is always trying to get you to see yourself and to see your problems seriously and rightly. So do you see yourself in this way? What are you enslaved to? Do you feel isolated and alone? Do you feel dead on the inside? All of that, according to Christianity, is a part of the dramatic effects of human sin. It's the reality of of the darkness. The beautiful thing about this story, though, is what Jesus does. So secondly, let me show you the retreat. The retreat of the darkness. Jesus gets out of the boat. Verse 6, the demon sees Jesus from far away, and he runs and falls down before him. So this is the situation. This demon-possessed man, possessed by this demon who calls himself Legion, which, by the way, is significant in and of itself. Legion is a Ancient Roman military term, a legion in the Roman army contained 6,000 troops. Now we know that only 2,000 pigs are possessed. We don't know the exact number. It could have been three demons per pig. Who knows? But it's a lot of demons. It's a legion, a literal army of darkness. Literal army of darkness approaches Jesus the minute he sets foot into the place where the shadows lie, the country of the Gerasenes. And we see immediate conflict taking place there in 6 and 7 and 8 and 9. Initially, we see Legion name Jesus. Look at what he says. What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? We saw back in chapter 1 when Jesus cast out the demon in the synagogue that the demon there named him too. He called him the Holy One of God. And the reason they do this is because in the ancient world, people believed that when you named someone, you were beginning to exercise authority and power over them. 
And so this is warfare language. The demon is attempting to get one up on Jesus right at the outset by calling him by his name. But he immediately recognizes, and Jesus immediately recognizes, and everyone immediately recognizes that the legion of demons is outmatched by this man, Jesus. And so the very next thing that he says is, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now what he's doing there is, Ironic. He's calling on a higher power, which was common in spiritual warfare of the day. Ironically, he's calling on the power of God to help him fight God. (laughs) He's calling on the higher power of God to prevent Jesus, the son of the most high God, from tormenting him. Initially, Legion comes at Jesus wanting to go at it, but immediately recognizes that he has met in Jesus a superior foe. And then we see that Jesus responds by simply saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And by the word of his power, the demon must obey. Jesus asks him, what is your name? Again, using the naming idea to exercise power over the demon. Legion has tried it on Jesus and it didn't work. And now Jesus is showing everyone who's really in charge. But notice that Jesus doesn't call on a higher power here. The reason for that is because Jesus is the higher power. You see, it's not that Jesus has a need to call on God to help him against an army of darkness. No, Jesus came as God himself in the flesh to ward off and defeat once for all all of the armies of darkness that invade this fallen world. He has no need to call on a higher power. There is no name in heaven or on earth greater than the name of Jesus. And so the demon does what Jesus tells him. But not without begging, Jesus sends him out into this great herd of pigs and the pigs go flying off of the hillside. Okay, real quick parenthesis. What is up with these pigs? I mean, seriously, that is weird. It's weird. Listen, no one really knows what, what's going on here, just to be honest. <laughs> if you read like 15 commentaries, guys that devote their lives to studying the scripture, they'll say 15 different things. A couple of things real quickly. Jesus is not like somehow showing leniency to the demons here. He's not like saying, oh, I'm going to destroy you, but okay, since you begged, you can just go into the demons or into the pigs. Um, what Jesus is doing here is showing the demons that their time for ultimate destruction has not yet come. But it will come on the day when he returns a second time. The, the already not yet nature of the kingdom is on display here. And then secondly, a lot of modern people get really upset that Jesus has these pigs go flying off of the cliff. And there's, I'm, I'm seriously, I'd love to talk to you about that if that's something that upsets you. But I guess the one conclusion I'll draw right now is that one human soul matters immensely more to God than thousands of lesser created things. And so I would think that that is clearly what part of what Mark is getting at in repeating this story to us from Jesus's ministry. If you want to talk more about the pigs, then I guess I'll listen to you maybe after the sermon. Um, But the point again is that Jesus is causing the darkness to retreat. And I want to, I want to just pause here and think about this for our own lives practically. Um, One of the most interesting questions is how does Jesus actually cause the darkness to retreat permanently in your life? And in my life. And the answer to that question gets us really to the very heart of the Christian story. 
Here's the answer. Jesus actually causes the darkness to retreat from all of your lives permanently and forever by, for a time, succumbing to it himself. You see, Jesus actually allows himself for a time to be overthrown and overwhelmed by the forces of darkness so that in defeating them, we will never be overwhelmed and overthrown by the forces of darkness. I mean, you could think about it this way. Jesus, in his death and in his suffering, willingly experiences what this demon-possessed man was unwillingly experiencing. And we read that this demon-possessed man was enslaved by this demon. Well, Jesus himself for a time, didn't he? Allowed his own hands to be bound. Allowed a gross miscarriage of justice to take place through the Roman and Jewish judicial systems allowed himself to be led outside the city gates up a hill and crucified. Jesus was willingly enslaved to the darkness for a time so that we won't ever have to be permanently enslaved to the darkness. Jesus was willingly left alone and isolated, just as this man was unwillingly left alone and isolated. As he sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, asking that if it's possible, this cup could pass him by as his friends and family abandoned him on the cross. And ultimately, as he lay there on the cross dying, and his father, whom he had known in eternity past in perfect Trinitarian love, turned his back on Jesus and left him alone to die. Jesus willingly experienced the isolation of the darkness, the isolation that sin brings so that we would never have to permanently experience it. This man lived among the tombs unwillingly. Jesus willingly didn't just live among the tombs. Jesus went into a tomb for three days. But he has been raised. Christ is risen. And the gates of hell will not prevail against his kingdom. The darkness has been overthrown. The resurrection proves that Jesus, in his willingness to temporarily be overwhelmed by the greatest forces of darkness, has actually secured for us the provision and the hope of never being overthrown by the greatest forces of darkness. As John tells us in his gospel, Jesus is the light of the world and the darkness has not overcome it. In Jesus, the forces of the evil one are pushed back. They are on the retreat. Jesus is breaking down the strongholds of darkness all over this universe, all through your lives. The beauty of the gospel that we see here laid out for us in this amazing story. Really, the only thing left to consider is how you're going to respond. And so, let me show you thirdly the response. The story ends by telling us about the responses that the people in the country of the Gerasenes had to what Jesus has done here. And that's fitting because as we're going through Mark, remember, every single week, Jesus is lovingly pressing you to answer for yourself the question, who is this? Who is this that by a word can calm the wind of the waves? Who is this that an army of demons has no chance against him? Who is this man? And again, Jesus is lovingly and gently pressing you to answer the question for yourself. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Who do you believe him to be? That is the question that the Bible, which is not just a story, but a living and active power from God, is right this very moment actively risking or asking that you will risk answering. 
Who is Jesus? And really there's, according to this text and many other parts of the scripture, only two ways to respond to to Jesus. And really neither of them are indifference. As Sinclair Ferguson puts it, either you're going to ask to go with Jesus or you're going to ask Jesus to go. And that's exactly what we see here. I mean, look in verse 14. The herdsmen that had seen what had happened with these pigs, they fled and they go and they tell it in the city and in the country and all the people come out to see what had happened. And they see the demon-possessed guy who once had had legion sitting there clothed in his right mind and they are afraid. And then they see what had happened to the pigs. And verse 17, they began to do what? To beg Jesus to depart. Go away from us, Jesus. These people can't handle his presence. Maybe that's how you've always responded to Jesus. You beg for him to depart when the reality of who he is begins to encroach on the way you view the world, the way you view yourself, the way you view God. Why do you think these people do that? Why do you do that? Well, what they do here is tell Jesus to go partly because they're afraid. They're afraid that Jesus is going to interrupt the status quo of their lives. They're afraid that Jesus is going to come and start messing things up. And they're exactly right, by the way. That's for sure something that Jesus will do when he enters into your story. I know I've used this sermon illustration before, and I'll probably use it again, but the best illustration of this idea is C.S. Lewis's little story in the book Mere Christianity, where he writes this. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But then he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. That's a very C.S. Lewis word, by the way. That hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. If you come to Jesus, he's going to start wrecking you, but wrecking you for your own good. Another reason these people ask Jesus to go The first is because they're afraid, and the second is because they're greedy. I mean, look at what they say. Mark tells us they saw what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and then four little words there, and to the pigs. Now, to us, the pigs thing is just weird. To them, every one of those pigs has a little dollar sign above its head. I was in Amarillo last weekend, my hometown, and I hadn't been there in eight years, and uh, a southwest wind was blowing on Saturday, And it smelled terrible. And the reason is because southwest of Amarillo is the lovely little town, the metropolis of Hereford, Texas, which, by the way, is where the wedding that I was in was. And uh, that wasn't great. But Hereford is a, a rancher town, and there are huge, very poorly constructed and poorly placed cattle lots. And when the wind is blowing in a certain direction, it begins to just stink like cow manure and all the other fun stuff that cows do. And if you ask someone from Amarillo, what's that smell? They're not going to tell you that's the smell of cow poop. They're going to tell you that's the smell of money. It's the smell of money. And that's exactly what these guys think about those pigs. These pigs represent 
economic interest for these herdsmen and for these town people. And they're disappointed. They're angry that Jesus has really ruined who their true God is, the God of money, mammon. And so they asked Jesus to go, not necessarily because they're only afraid, but because they would rather continue to worship the gods that they already have. Maybe that's one of the reasons that you've continually resisted him. But the point is that these people cared more about their financial means and the bottom line than they did about experiencing life in the kingdom of God. And it's part of the tragedy of this story. One clear way to respond to Jesus is the way these people respond, to say, go. But the other way to respond to Jesus is the way the formerly demon-possessed man responds, and that's to say, I want to go with you. I mean, look at what he does. Verse 18, as Jesus is getting back into the boat, I guess Jesus is like, maybe I'll go back to Galilee for a while. You know, I've caused enough trouble here in the land of the Gerasenes for three hours. But as he's getting back into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. This guy longs to be with Jesus. Can I come with, can I be one of the disciples? I want to go to seminary, right? I want to be a missionary. I want to preach. I want to go with you, Jesus. You see, this guy's experienced the transformation of grace that only the Lord Jesus Christ can provide. And when someone experiences the transformation that Jesus alone provides, the first thing that person wants to do is be with Jesus. Interestingly, Jesus denies him. He didn't permit him, but instead he sends him out on mission. Look at what Jesus says. Go home, and instead of coming with me, tell your friends here. Tell them how much I've done for you. Tell them how much mercy I have had. And so the man goes away and does exactly that. He began to proclaim how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. The question should be clear to all of us at this point. How are you going to respond to Jesus? How are you going to respond to his authority and to his redemptive compassion? How are you going to respond to his work for you and to his offer of salvation? That is the question that the God of the universe at this very moment is asking each one of you sitting here and is asking me as I stand here. Will you turn away from him because you just prefer the old way and the old habits of doing things too much? Or will you, will you decide to remain in the darkness, enslaved though you are, instead of risking everything on what Jesus offers you? Will you continue to delude yourself into thinking that money is the answer, or power is the answer, or sex is the answer, or getting married is the answer, or having kids is the answer, or having your deepest dreams fulfilled is the answer to all that you've always wanted? Will you continue believing that something other than Jesus has the power to answer your problems, or will you accept that, that Jesus is the only way that your real problems will ever even be revealed, much less solved? Will you continue in that way or will you trust Jesus and follow him like this man did? Will you do what Jesus asks you? Will you accept his offer to show you mercy? Jesus right now is calling you to himself. He is calling you out of the darkness, into his marvelous light. He is calling you out of a life of slavery and fear and unbelief and brokenness into the goodness and the joy and the peace of his kingdom. And you respond to him. You can respond to him right now by turning from your old ways and trusting him. That's what the Bible calls repentance and faith. 
Believe that you have a real need like this man did, that you are in the reality of darkness. Believe that he takes it away in his suffering and death and resurrection. Believe that his grace is more powerful than your sin and your shame. Believe that the offer is being made to you right now and come to Jesus like this man. Come and fall at his feet and say, can I be with you? And know that he will never say no to that question. And after he accepts you, he will send you out to tell others of the marvelous things he has done for you because he is the light, the light of the world that pushes back the armies of darkness. They cannot stand before King Jesus. Francis Harper as a poet, 19th century poet, and uh, I want to conclude by reading a part of uh, one of his poems that I've actually read before but came across again this week because I think it sums up very well, very well what Jesus is asking of each of us. So listen to these words. Light, more light. The shadows deepen and my life is ebbing low. Throw the windows widely open. Light, more light before I go. Light, more light. For death is weaving shadows round my waning sight. And I fain would gaze upon him through a stream of earthly light. Gracious Savior, when life's daydreams melt and vanish from the sight, may our dim and longing vision then be blessed with light, more light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the light of the world, that you sent Jesus to be the light of the world, and that in Jesus... Through faith in Jesus, the darkness cannot overwhelm us. We thank you that Jesus, in his supreme authority, power, and compassion, has overruled the forces of evil and has made himself known as the King and Savior of sinners. And we pray, O oh God, that you would help us to believe these things. Help us to see Jesus for, for who he is and put our trust in him, to turn aside from the darkness that is indwelling each of our hearts to repent of our shortcomings and failures and to trust in Jesus, the light of the world, who freely offers himself to us now. Father, if someone is here and has not done that before, I pray that you would put it on their hearts. If someone is here in need of repentance after many years away from you, I pray that you would lead them in that direction. For those that are here tonight that have trusted Jesus for decades and yet long to trust him and know him more, help us, O oh Father, to believe that the gospel is true. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.